Lord, even uh, just looking over the events of last Wednesday night, we thank you for we thank you for protection. That could have been a really bad deal. Uh, we we thank you for your goodness to us and to the kids upstairs. Even as Joe was telling us about even the air conditioners, what was going on and stuff flying around. Um, thank you. We are grateful. We we are. Um, we want to be careful to thank you when you, when you intercede for us. And uh, we, we are mindful when things like that hit, when things happen. We, we all like to be in control, and we like to have a sense of control, but things can change so rapidly. Uh, our lives can change so quickly. So we are grateful, Lord, that we know the truth. We know the truth about you. Well, there are not random forces in the world. It's not, uh, it's not chance. But, uh, but you're in charge and you're in control. We don't always understand your purposes. Um, we just don't. And there are some things that, uh, that we do understand. You've revealed to us in Scripture, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that there are secret things. There are secret things that we don't get. There are secret things that are part of your plan and your purpose that we don't understand. We couldn't get it if you revealed it to us because we don't have the capacity. But one day we'll understand. In the meantime, we trust you when we don't understand, when, um, when, when life is difficult and life is hard and life is disappointing and we just simply get tired of the battle and tired of the difficulties. and We trust you. I, um, I ask you tonight in particular that you'll help us as men with this section we're going to look at because this patience stuff does not come easy to us. This, this patience stuff runs against and across our grain. Uh, for most of us in here, it's, it's one of the most difficult things that we deal with. We, um, we don't have a lot of patience. We just don't. Uh, a lot of us, it's because of our temperaments, it's because of our personalities, it's how we're, it's how we're hardwired. It, it is a very difficult thing for us to get our arms around. So we, we would ask that you would teach us, we ask that you would give us a breakthrough in this area of our lives. We, we ask that you would give us an ability to trust you and your timing, that you would give us... Uh, uh, hope and encouragement, because sometimes, Lord, when you require us to wait, uh, the longer that waiting goes on, for something that we believe that would be your will, the, the longer we have to wait, the more we're prone to lose hope and begin to think, well, this will never be answered and you will never respond. Yet most of us in this room have had experiences where we we're on the verge of losing hope, perhaps did lose hope for, for a time, and then we saw you come through at just the right time. Help us to learn from those past experiences. Help us to, uh, help us to grow in our trust. Help us, Lord, to want to mature. Uh, help us not to get complacent. Uh, help us not to put it on cruise control. But, but to desire to grow. 
and to continue this process of maturity. So keep us teachable, keep us open. Help us to listen to your spirit as he wants to apply this to our lives tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my question for you tonight as we open is simply this. Do you ever think about dying? How's that for a nice positive way to start? You ever think about death? Sure you do. And Dave, that's right. The older you get. I never really thought much about death when I was in high school. Although the way I drove, I should have thought about it. Um, I, I, can, I can distinctly remember after I turned 40, for the first time really thinking about death. Uh, you know it's out there, you just think it's not going to happen to you. So do you ever think about death? And the answer would be, yeah, especially if you're over 40. Now, here's my other question. Have you ever thought about dying and thought it would not be a bad thing? Have you ever been in a spot in your life where you thought about dying and you actually welcomed the thought? Yeah, some of you have. Well, if, if, if you've been there, the reason that you would think about dying and think about it in a positive light is because in some way, shape, or form, you were deeply afflicted, just on every side. In, in, this, in this book of James, we spent a lot of time in the first chapter because he was talking about, the, about, about trials and the difficulties, and the afflictions, and the hardships of life. That would all come under the heading of trials. And, and he told us to count it joy when we encounter various trials, and we went over that for weeks and weeks and weeks. Didn't say feel it as joy, didn't say experience it as joy, because trials, <clears throat> trials are not joyful. If they were joyful, they wouldn't be trials. When you have trials, you don't get everybody together and order a pizza uh, and celebrate. Trials are lousy. Nobody wants them. Nobody enjoys them. So he doesn't say feel it as joy, experience it as joy. He says think it as joy. Consider, ponder in your mind that the reason these afflictions and these hardships are coming into your life is because God is up to something in your life. That's basically what he has to say in those, in those opening verses. Uh, he talks about the importance of endurance. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing, not feeling, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, mature, lacking in nothing. So the way we develop endurance is through going through hardship and trials. Now, when we come to James uh, 5 tonight, and we come to verse 7, he he says something to these people that, uh, once again, is not easy. He says in verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, if there's anything that's difficult for us as men, just as men, is patience. We, we tend not to have a lot of it. 
Um, it, it really is one of the weakest links in my life is patience. Um, and, and as I said earlier, it has to do, in the prayer, it has to do a lot with temperament. Uh, if, if you're a type A, if you're a charger, if you're a get-things-done kind of guy, uh, you've got goals. When your goals are blocked, when they're blocked, I, I took a battery when I was, when you do the uh, doctoral program at, uh, at uh, Dallas Seminary, they give you a bunch of different tests. Uh, instruments to, to check you out, and a whole battery of them. And they're very interesting, and they tell you about them afterwards. And One of them, a, a friend of mine who's a psychologist, said, yeah, he says, that one assumes you're insane. <laughs> I said, really? He said, they just assume you're insane, and then you, by your questions, then you basically have to prove to them you're not. And uh, by the way, if you're insane, they usually don't let you in the Dallas Seminary. It's just kind of a criteria they've established. Yeah, which is a good one, I think, personally. But uh, you, you take this whole battery of tests, and uh, I remember this one I took, and there were about nine of them, and they were very helpful, but as they were explaining to me, you see, your personality and you know, the way you're wired and all this, you fit into this. And, uh, and then it says stress factors. And, one of the, and, the, and the top thing it mentioned was blocked goals. I've never forgotten that. Because when I started getting irritable, and I start getting, when I start getting irritable, it's for one of two reasons. Number one, I haven't slept enough. Um, Christian life is very practical. When I don't get enough sleep, I get irritable. So one of the things that over the years I've tried to do, especially when my kids were little, if, if I was irritable, I would, um, I would try to go to bed early. And... Um, and Mary and the kids would encourage me to do that. <laughs> yeah, Dad, it's about uh, 5.45 here. We've just had dinner. Why don't you go to bed, Dad? I went to bed last night at 7.15. I actually fell asleep reading and um, woke up at about 9.15 and just crawled in the bed because I was tired and woke up at 2.30 bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> I'm completely screwed up on my time, but that's all right. Um, <clears throat> when I'm irritable, I, it's, it may be because I'm tired. Here's the other thing. It may be because I'm experiencing blocked goals. One of my goals when I pray is that when I hit difficult times and I hit difficult situations and I hit trials... Um, I'll just be honest with you guys. Uh, one of my goals is to live pain-free. That's one of my fleshly goals. That's one of your goals. We may not state it. We may not admit it. But you know what? We kind of all want to live free of pain in any area of our life. Um, that's how we'd like life to be. When it comes to our finances, we'd like to be free of pain. When, when it comes to our health, we'd like to be free of physical pain. When it comes to our, our marriages, we'd like to be free of pain and difficulty and misunderstanding and just be, uh, uh, sometimes, uh, the way it works, sometimes a wife's on AM and the guy's on, uh, what did I say? AM and the guy's on, and uh, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm not able to communicate it, but I'm hopefully you're picking it up. 
What I'm trying to say is that sometimes a husband is on AM and a wife is on FM. Thank you. See, I have this sudden urge to go to sleep right now. That's what's happening. I'm, I'm just complete. What's well, my bedtime? See, it's, it's about 7.35, so no wonder I'm having difficulty up here. It's no fun when you're on AM and she's on FM. You just, you're on different frequency. We like to be on the same frequency, and you say something, and you don't have to explain a lot, and she gets it. We like that. There's no pain. There's no stress. Our kids, we love it when our kids do what we think they ought to do. Isn't that great? But they're growing up, and they're becoming adults, and they've got to make their own decisions, and they've got to find their own way, and so the, the role of a father changes. It's different when they're 16 as opposed to when they're 26 or 36. And if you don't make that transition, you're going to have a lot of pain. If you're still trying to act like they're 16 and they're not 16, well, you're just you're causing your own pain. We'd like to be pain-free. When trials and hardships and difficulty hit our lives, here's how we tend to pray. We tend to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And by the way, please remove all the pain. We don't like pain. We don't like difficulty. We want everything to work. But the problem is, it doesn't work that way. Uh, We're dealing with trials. We're dealing with hardships. In verse 7, when he says, Therefore be patient. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Why is he saying this? Because they are experiencing trials. They're experiencing adversity. They're experiencing hardship. Now, last week, um, for those of you who are listening to this here and weren't here, to those who may be listening later uh, by, by a CD, we were interrupted because a storm hit in the middle of our study and the power went out, and so we had to do this by a flashlight in the dark and so it wasn't as thorough as we normally would have done. It wasn't taped. Uh, I was thinking about this. That actually works out okay, even though there's not a CD of last week, because it, it absolutely fits where we are tonight, because there's a transition. When he says, therefore, be patient, by the way, when you're studying the Scripture and you see a therefore, that's always a hint. The, the hint, whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Uh, therefore is a summary statement, is it not? He doesn't say, be patient, brethren. He says, therefore, be patient. So in other words, the reason he's telling them to be patient is because of something he has just previously said to them, which is in the first six verses of chapter 5, which basically he is talking to the rich. He's talking to the wealthy. He is talking to those to whom Wealth is their God. He is talking to those who are hard-charging people of affluence who have gained wealth by illegitimate means and uh, are not handling the wealth correctly, and they love their wealth more than they love God. That's why he says, and and I'll do this quickly to summarize it, that's why he says uh, in in chapter 5, He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He's not talking about all people that have wealth. He's talking about people that have wealth, that love their wealth more than they love God. Jesus said, you can't love God on money. So he's talking about uh, rich people who are going to, now catch this, who are going to be judged because of how they have misused 
the wealth that they have been given. Deuteronomy 8.18 tells us that wealth is a gift from God. It is he who has given you the power to make wealth. He indicts these people, and the reason they should weep and howl is that they're going to be judged. Now, why are they going to weep and howl? They're going to weep and howl for specific reasons because of how they misuse the money. And if you note verse 3, the reason that they are told to weep and howl and the reason they are indicted for misusing their money, he says this, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. The idea here, you say, what's wrong with storing? The idea here is hoarding. They had misused their wealth by hoarding their wealth. In, in the scriptures, there is a concept of using wealth to be productive and to further the kingdom. Give and it shall be given unto you. There wasn't a giving spirit here. There wasn't a, a thought of, of investing. Um, is it wrong to start a company? Is it wrong to raise capital? Uh, I don't believe it is. Because a lot of positive things can come out of that if you have the right perspective. Now, a lot of negative things can come out of that if you have the wrong perspective. But a lot of good can be done. In fact, in, in some of these third world nations, you, you've seen it on television, you've read the reports, they're actually making small loans to people, very small loans to us, but they're giving people capital to become self-sufficient and start their own business, and they're, they, they learn to be responsible, they get there early, they stay late, they learn to handle certain things. So instead of always being on the take or always waiting for you know, uh, World Vision to come in with food, they learn how to be productive. That, that, that's a good thing, that's a good use. Somebody is investing money to help someone else uh, improve their lot in life, that's gonna affect children, it's gonna affect the community, you understand that. Hoarding doesn't help anybody. Hoarding doesn't. Then in verse 4, he, he says to these rich people who are going to weep and howl, the, and we need to say this, there's not a blanket indictment in the scriptures of being wealthy. Uh, in the scriptures, you see God making people wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. You see wealthy people. Uh, so it's not a blanket indictment. It has to do with the human heart. You see their hearts in verse 4, because the, the next way they misused their wealth was, he says, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, which means the Lord of the armies or the Lord of the host. He's coming back one day, and he will judge you because... You, you, these people did the work and you won't pay them. And you've got it. Why won't you pay them? Because you're hoarding the money. And then in verse 5, he says, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of $400 haircuts and wanton pleasure. You fatten your heart in a day of slaughter. He's saying, hey, you guys, you, you, your, your, your lifestyle of luxury and wanton pleasure is obnoxious to me. So you're completely misusing what I have given to you. Um, Douglas Moo, M-O-O, -O, a biblical scholar. If my name was Moo, I'd change it. But that's his call, not mine. In his commentary on James, is a great section here. I want to just give you a shot. Speaking of the rich people in this passage... 
The rich people pictured are clearly wealthy landowners, a class accused of economic exploitation and oppression from early times. In James' surroundings, we may think particularly of the Palestinian Jewish landlords who owned large estates and were often concerned only about how much profit could be gained from their lands. James proceeds to announce their condemnation, uh, the condemnation on these rich landholders. Why does James preach this message of denunciation of non-Christians in a letter addressed to the church? Well, John Calvin appropriately isolates two main purposes. Now catch this. Calvin said, James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. If you notice in verse 6, speaking of the wealthy, another reason it gives that they're going to be condemned and judged, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. He cannot resist you. There was no means back then in this system. It was a Roman There was no means for the guy he was abused and taken advantage of to provide for his family. It's sort of like in England in the Middle Ages, the, the, the feudal system. There were great forests, the whole Robin Hood thing. There were great forests and one, the Sherwood Forest. But if you had kids at home that were starving and you went out and uh, shot a deer in order to feed your kids, that deer doesn't belong to you. That, hey, that belongs to the king, King Charles. That belongs to some baron. That, they'd, they'd string you up. That's not right. That's wrong. And so that's why that King Charles was forced through political pressure and through a whole movement and this whole Magna Carta thing started. And if you know your history, you know that was when things changed in English law and that filtered down to us and, you see, because somebody was trying to put biblical principles into this and wrong, rather right the wrongs that the rich had done. Okay. Now, with that in mind, most of these Christians addressed in the book of James, these Jewish Christians, were working under this system. It was a horrific system. They had trials, they had adversity, they had difficulty. Um, just being a Christian in the early church was hard. You had a system that was against you. Uh, the, there was persecution for loving Christ. But contextually, he says in verse 7, after condemning the rich, he says, therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord, because you're having to work in and under this system, which is a horrible system. That was their trial. That was their affliction. Is it not true that when trials and difficulties come into our life, our prayer is, Lord, remove this difficulty and affliction as quickly as possible? That's how we pray, because we're human. But what James says is, he says, in the midst of those afflictions and those hardships, now catch this. He says, therefore, be patient. Because you see, sometimes, why do I keep hearing classical music? Oh, they're practicing. Oh, okay. Well, then that, that explains it. I thought I was picking up a frequency through this uh, earpiece no one else was picking up. I, I kept waiting for the call letters of WRR. But, okay, that explains it. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, 
until the coming of the Lord. Well, you know what, quite frankly? If I was one of the early Christians reading this, that wouldn't be good news to me. I don't want to be patient. I want him to fix it. I want him to judge these guys now. I want some relief. I don't want to keep going through this. I don't want to keep, you know, I don't want to deal with this every day. Isn't that how you feel? Now, now see, we're not dealing with this. We deal with other things. Back in James 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Various. We all have trials. We all have hardship. We all have affliction. But it's various. Nobody in here suffers exactly the same way. Nobody. Some guys, some guys, um, it, it's 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 financial. That's that's where you are, and you're, you, that just seems to be the area where where your trials come. Others, uh, it, it's a health issue. Others, um, as we said, a marriage issue or a, something with your kids or. Uh, maybe you've been falsely accused of something. It, it comes in 150 different ways from 150 different angles. What happens sometimes, and we've talked about this in here, is that sometimes uh, they come in waves, and man, you just, you just get knocked down. You, you, you get hit one you didn't see coming, and then you, barely, you, know, you just get up, and boom, you get hit another, and you get hit another. And it gets old, and it gets tiring, and it gets difficult. Um, I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, uh, I'm not real strong on patience. I'm asking God to take it away. But here he says, therefore, be patient. Be patient. He's going to give three models of patience. I like this guy, James. He's just clear. He's succinct. He's to the point. This guy, you know what? This guy was good with men, this James guy. I, I, men, men would have related to this guy because there's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of cotton. It's just, listen, be patient. Be patient. You got three examples of being patient. Look at the first one in verse 7. The farmer. Now, we're not talking about a farmer in America, you know, farming 6,000 acres uh, with an irrigation system and water coming from whatever or a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley in California with 10,000 acres you know, who's bringing water down from Northern California, from the Colorado River, down by the Mexican. But we're not talking about that kind of farmer. We're talking about a farmer who's a farmer before the last hundred years. A guy with no irrigation, a guy with uh, no ag agent, a guy who's never taken a college course. We're just talking about a guy who's trying to make it. Get that kind of farmer in your mind 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Be patient, brother, brethren, until the coming of the Lord when everything will be made right, is the idea. The farmer, here's your first example of patience. The farmer waits. I don't like that word. Do you? I personally, I don't. The farmer waits. We don't want to wait. What does he wait for? The farmer waits for the produce. Actually, that's not what he says. The farmer waits for the what? The precious produce. Because you see, as a farmer, you've known times when the produce didn't come. Because the rain didn't come. 
and you couldn't turn a valve to make water come. And when you've been through that a couple of times, when produce shows up, it is precious. Now here's our model. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. The, the rains that come in the autumn, the rains that come in the spring. Maybe you've seen the painting. I don't know who did it. I've seen it around in different venues and different places and different homes. Um, you get the sense uh, it's, it's an American farmer back in the 20s or 30s. Uh, he's, he's in his field with his wife. He obviously has just planted his seed. He is uh, weather-beaten. He's worn. He looks like he's in his late 50s, when in fact he may be 40. His hands are calloused. His overalls are frayed. Um, He's kneeling, he's kneeling in the middle of his field. His wife is standing next to him in, a, uh, in, an, in an old, worn-out dress with an apron. Um, her face is wrinkled, hair pulled back, no makeup. Uh, hard-working woman who's had a hard life. He's kneeling. She's standing next to him with her hand on his shoulder. Both of their heads are bowed. And they're asking God to send the rain so that their work and labor will produce precious produce. That's the picture. That's our first example of of patience. It doesn't come overnight. There are some things you have to wait for. I, I was speaking, uh, oh, about three months ago out at Mount Hermon. And uh, in the smaller auditorium, I was doing a men's deal there, a couple hundred guys. But I remember, whenever I'm there, I remember being in that building when I was 22 years old. And uh, I just graduated from college and I wanted to go to seminary, but circumstantially, I was having to wait to go to seminary. And, and I, wanted, I wanted to go right then. And, uh, but in hindsight, it wasn't time for me to go. I needed the work. I needed to save some money. And I really wanted to go to seminary, but I couldn't because I had to, I had to work. And, you know, so I'm working long hours. But... Um, I was going to Peninsula Bible Church where Ray Stedman was pastor and Dave Roper taught and, uh, and Ron Ritchie. And man, those guys taught the scripture. And I remember going over to a men's retreat at Mount Hermon and I was 22. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm sitting there and I can even tell you where I was sitting in that redwood little, you know, not the auditorium, but the small, the small meeting center, the big fireplace. I can, here's the fireplace here and I'm sitting right over there next to the window. And I'll never forget this. Dave Roper was teaching. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And he said, he said, gentlemen, God is not in a hurry. And I remember thinking, I remember hearing that. I remember going, crud. <laughs> Every time I go back there, I think of that. Because you know what? I, I was in a hurry. 
I did not want to wait. I wanted to get into school. I wanted to get into seminary right then. I was frustrated that I wasn't able to go in January, and here it was April, and it was going to be another year, and I had all these plans, and I, but, but it wasn't time yet. You see? It wasn't time yet. But I wanted it to be time, and I wanted it to be fixed, and I wanted... You, you've been there. God is not in a hurry, but we are. There's something I'm working on. I'm consciously working on. Uh, and I, I've been working on it for a couple of weeks. Um, I am consciously trying to discipline myself when I'm driving and I come to an intersection and the light turns yellow. I am consciously making myself hit the brake instead of hitting on the gas. I read um, that they got all these cameras in Dallas now for red light. The first, the first month, they issued 20,000 citations for people running red lights. Then about 10 days ago, my son John, who's a firefighter paramedic, showed up on the scene of an accident at 2 in the morning where a guy had run a red light and uh, two women were killed. And within days of me reading about the guys running red light, 20,000 people, and John told me about that. I thought, why am I, in, why, am I, why am I in such a hurry to make that light? You know, it's just not that big of a deal. It's just a little thing of, of patience. Why would I hit the gas? Because I don't want to wait. I'm impatient. It's just a small thing. This patience thing is hard for us. Now, he's going to give us another example. Um, in 8, he says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the, Lord, for the coming of the Lord is near. You said, well, the early Christians thought Jesus was going to come at any time. That's right. And we think Jesus is going to come at any time. The Lord's coming is near. You know that, don't you? You said, well, well they thought he was going to come right then. Yeah, that's what they thought. It doesn't say he was coming right then. It's near. A day is like a thousand years unto the Lord. He can come at any time. And that's what he's saying. He says, you guys got to be patient. Now, note the next example. Note the next example. He, he tells them in nine not to complain against one another because a lot of times when we're impatient, we get irritable and it affects our relationships. But where I'm going is, look at verse 10. Here's his second example. First it was the farmer. Then in 10, and he says it as an example Brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, let me, let me say this to you. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the guys who came to the kings. And if you were here during our study that we did on the Old Testament kings, most of all those kings, what were there, 43 of them in the Old Testament that, that reigned over Judah and Israel? Most of those kings were screwed up. They were against God. They were going a different direction. They were into all kinds of idolatry and child sacrifice. And, and they didn't have hearts for God. They knew the truth. They knew the scriptures. So what would happen is God would send them prophets. Now, here was the deal about being a prophet. Uh, when you were a prophet, they, um, let me put it this way. If you were out of work and you went to a job fair and it said prophet, you probably don't want to go over there. The pay is not real good. The benefits are lousy. 
there's no annual convention. You see, when you're a prophet, uh, they see you coming, and they just get hacked. They, they don't want to hear from you. They, they, here's what they tend to do with prophets. They, they tend to kill them. If they don't kill them, they torture them. Um, uh, Elijah was a prophet. He had to go and deliver news to Ahab and Jezebel. And then basically, he was on the run for three and a half years. Uh, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. The, the prophet Jeremiah, God said, hey, I want, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and talk to the nation. I want you to speak my word. Oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen ever. You talk about blocked goals. You will not be successful. There was no church growth seminar back then. There, there, there were no books to read on how to be a popular prophet. Prophets are not welcome. They don't like prophets. So prophets live difficult lives with, with little success, little affirmation, hardly any results. That's a prophet. A prophet had to be patient. Patient. We don't like people who tell us the truth. I was talking to Chuck yesterday for just a little bit, and I asked him, because he spoke the National Prayer Breakfast in D.C., I asked him how it went, and he said, fine. And we were just talking. He, he said, that, man, that's just a, it's a hard place up there. They're not real big on truth. I said, so what would you do, Chuck? He said, I told him the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, look at verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. Now here you're going to come with your third, your third example of patience. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. The Lord knows what you're going through. The Lord knows what you're dealing with. So, so you've got three models. When, when you're in difficult circumstances that you want to get out of, and we're all afflicted in different ways. So what do you have? You, you've got the farmer who's patient. You've got the prophets who were patient. You've got Job who was patient. It, it just didn't happen overnight with Job. Did God restore Job? Yes, but it, he went through, he went through uh, valleys that he did not want to go through. Um, You've got to tie this all into the context of the book. What was it that James said in that opening chapter? Count it joy, consider it as joy, think it as joy. How can you do that when you enter various trials? And once again, guys, he didn't say if you encounter various trials. He said when. When you encounter various trials. Think it as joy. How can you do that? I mentioned John to you. Um, when he was in college in California... The way, the first time he got interested in firefighting, and I might have told this story last week or the week before. Maybe not. Maybe it was in Canada in the blizzard I told the story. I, I'm not sure, but I'm going to tell it again. He first, he called me up, and John loves to work out. He loves to work out. He loves it. And he called me up, and we were talking, and, and he, said, uh, he, he said, Dad, I'm working out with these guys, the firefighters. I said, really? He goes, yeah, there's some pretty neat guys. He said, hey, you know what, Dan? He said, they pay these guys to work out. I said, really? He, he said, they pay them. They go to work, and they work out. I mean, they got complete gyms. They, I, these guys took me down to the fire station there in Orange County, and they got these gyms. And these guys, they're paying them to work out. I said, that's wild. 
he started hanging out with him, started seeing, he really started getting interested in it. And, and you know, I tell you, he loves this stuff. But John loves working out. He just, he loves it. He loves it. He loves it. He just, John despises guys that use steroids. He despises them. He has friends from high school, and uh, the guy's been working out three weeks, and he's got a 19-inch bicep. And he just, he can hardly handle it. He just, it just bothers him because they're, they're taking shortcuts. So, so when John works out, he works out. And he's pretty intense. While he was out there at spring break, his younger brother Josh went out to see him. Josh was a senior in high school. Josh is in pretty good shape. Josh was a gymnast for five or six years and a uh, you know, pretty good athlete. Josh goes out to see him, and John's talking to him, and John's going to go where? And he says, well, I'll go work out with you. And John says, well, hey, I got this workout thing. And he says, Josh, I'm telling you, if you do this, he says, you'll bulk up. You'll get big quick, but it's tough. And Josh says, well, what do you do? And so he took him over there. He said, I'm telling you, if you do what I tell you to do, you don't. So Josh is fine. So John believes, here's what John believes. It's, in, it's, in the, uh, it's on the wall. No pain, no gain. So Jane has, John has this belief system that you use a lot of weight and you use a lot of reps. But see, when you're young, that makes sense. A lot of weight and a lot of reps. So he does this workout thing. And Josh is doing it with him. And they get done and, and they go back to the apartment. And Josh is absolutely exhausted. And, and, and so Josh just goes on to bed. Three o'clock in the morning, Josh wakes up screaming in the middle of the night because... His arms and his hands and his wrists are like this, and he can't undo them. And he yells for John, and John, John comes in, and he says, John, John. And John said, see, it's working. That's, and he says, this is nuts. He says, no, it, it, that only lasts for about a week. I mean, it won't, I mean, it won't be, it'll go away in a little bit, but if you can work through that for about a week to 10 days... That's insane. <laughs> but it's kind of how God works us. Is it not? Do you, do you not ever get tired? Do you not ever get tired of the trials? Do you not ever get tired of the adversity? Do, do you not? Do you, and, and do you ever get to the point where you wonder if it's ever going to go away? And you're trying to be teachable, and you're trying to be open, but, but you're just sick and tired of waking up in the middle of the night. <laughs> the hardest chapter I ever went through in my life was in my early 30s. I told you guys about it. It's when I went through that depression. I remember going in to see the doctor. I don't, you know, probably like a lot of guys in here, I don't go see the doctor just because I got a, a, you know, an ache but I was having jabbing, stabbing pains in my chest. So I went in to see a doctor. He runs me through all these tests. I mean, he, he hooked me up. He wired me up. It was unbelievable. And then he comes in. I was there quite a while, and he came in, and he, uh, he's looking over over there, and he says, well, he said, uh, I was 32. He said, uh, he said, there's nothing wrong with your heart. No blockage, nothing. I said, okay, good. You under any stress? I said, what? He said, are you under any stress? <laughs> and I laughed. 
And it was probably the first time I'd laughed in a year. He said, all that is is stress. He says, we have a class you can take on stress reduction. And I thought, well, that's not working in this deal. It's not going to work. Uh, I didn't take the class, and it wouldn't help me. Because it was one of those periods, it was one of those periods where, can I say this to you? That God was sending trials into my life. And, and what was happening in my heart and literally in my chest was that I was cramping up. It was just stress. I found an interesting verse this week. I've seen this verse before, but uh, I had never quite seen it in the way that I saw it. I'd like you to turn over with me to Job, if you would. We're talking about patience. And guys, listen, when you work for a wealthy Palestinian Jewish landowner who abuses you and doesn't pay you and withholds your wages and is unfair and is difficult to work, see, nobody wants to be in that situation. All you want to do is get out of it. But there are times, there are times when God locks us in. There are times, and if and if you have a biblical concept of God, you know that in your life there are no mistakes and there's no accidents. God runs your life. It, when we talk about the providence of God, God is in the details. The devil is not in the details. I, 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 I hope you're getting a grip on that. God is in charge of our lives. And how many of you believe that God has a plan for your life? Of course he has a plan for your life. Is that, that plan, and you know this, that plan is not one of ease and affluence and everything going your way. Uh, it's not to say God doesn't bless us. God does bless us. God has been so remarkably good to, to us. But God doesn't pour constant blessing on us all the time because we couldn't handle it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're getting, I'm going to Job, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're going to go into the promised land after 40 years of waiting. 40 years of waiting, of waiting. They had to be patient. There wasn't a cotton-picking thing they could do to change it. And as they're going into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 6, God says, listen, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you orchards and plants or, or crops you didn't, you didn't plant. I'm going to give you cisterns that you didn't hewn out of the rock to hold your water. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But be careful. Be careful. Well, why would I have to be careful? Because when you get all this good stuff, that your heart doesn't wander from me. And what happened? Their hearts wandered from him. We can't take unbridled prosperity. We can't take it. We can't handle it. The old hymn says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God I love. If Solomon could get into idolatry, we could get into idolatry. So God has the foot on the accelerator of our lives and on the brake of our lives. And he, in his wisdom, knows what is good for us and knows what is best for us, and we don't always like what he's doing. But we need to say this. He is the one who ordains our lives he micromanages our lives. He's in control of, of blessing and of difficulty, the Bible says. In Deuteronomy 13, he says, I'm the God who gives life, and I'm the God who kills. 
It's a little, a little strong, isn't it? He says, I'm the God who heals, and I'm the God who wounds. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. In, uh, 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 I, let's see. Um, I'm blanking. It's not Isaiah 46. It's, is it 45? Is that what I want to say? I'm the God, I am the God who causes well-being and creates you're right, it is 45. I'm the God who causes well-being and creates calamity. Does that fit your theology? Does it? Or do you watch Christian television? And as I've said, there are good guys on there, and there are horrific guys. And usually the way you tell the difference is the hair. You remember that, don't you? All that hairspray gets into their brain cells. Anyway. Uh, Go to Job 19, if you would, please. See, there are some guys in here, and here's where you are. Not everybody. There's some guys in here right now, and you know what's happening to you? The weight is so heavy, and the repetition of difficulty is so intense that you're cramping up. You're just cramping up. And, and you know what? You're just, you're just tired, and you're losing patience. You don't, want to deal with, you don't want to do it anymore. You just don't want to do it anymore. I, I was um, praying. I had to take a walk about 10 days ago and pray for someone I know very well because I've been praying for them for a long time and I haven't seen any movement whatsoever not not for years and, and I got to tell you I, I was I, I, I was I was really I told the Lord I said you know I I, I I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lose hope, but, I'm, but that's how I feel. Because I've seen no movement from you at all. None. And if you would move in their lives, it, it would help them trust you more. And that's the core issue in their life. And what's interesting is about two days ago, I got a letter from that individual. And in that letter... They said some things to me over what's been happening in their lives over the last several weeks that I knew nothing about. And basically, they were saying to me that I'm praying that God would do this, but even if he doesn't, it's okay. I still need to trust him. I saw movement in that letter I hadn't seen in, I hadn't seen in 15 years. God's working. God's working in that situation. It's so apparent what he's doing. Right when I was frustrated and I don't see you, he's working. Isn't that amazing? Job 19, and you know the story of Job. Job 19, verse 9. Uh, Actually, verse 8. I want you to see the frustration in this guy. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's put darkness on my paths. 
He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He has uprooted, he has uprooted my hope like a tree. See, when, when, when you're in these periods of concentrated, intense difficulty and hardship, that's how you feel. And see, when you feel like that, now, now hey, by the way, did Job know that one day that God would inspire a man to write a book that would be read by millions of Christians for thousands of years that would use him as an example of hope and patience? See, this guy just about lost his hope, and he just about lost his patience. He was tired. He was tired of the weights, and he was tired of the repetition. This guy's cramping. He's cramping up. Go to chapter 23. Verse 3, sometimes when this is going on in our lives and we don't get relief and we're not seeing, we're not seeing God re- answer our prayers in the sense of relieving us from the difficulty and we're having to be patient longer than we ever dreamed we'd have to be patient, we thought by now we'd be through it. We thought by now this would be over. Look at this guy. I love this. Oh, that I knew where I might find him that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. This guy's human, just like you, just like me. I don't get this. Why are you doing this to me? You ever feel that way? Look at verse 8. Behold, hey, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, I cannot perceive him. When, When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right. I cannot see him. There's no evidence of him at work in my life whatsoever on, either, on any side. It's tough. Look at verse 10. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So what was going on with Job? What was going on with this guy? Was it just the luck of the draw? Oh, God, he just drew the wrong cards? Was God mad at him? See, a lot of times when stuff comes our way, we think God's mad at us. Let me tell you something. If you're not in habitual, hidden sin, God's not mad at you. Now, if you're in habitual, hidden sin that you're covering, and you know him, now he's going to discipline you, and he's going to take out his belt, and he's going to whip your rear end. Because he wants you to respond to him and knock that stuff off. Does that make sense? Just like any good dad would do. Okay? But you say, well, Steve, I'm not practicing. There's a difference between falling in the sin here and there and practicing it. Like you'd practice the piano like Van Cliburn eight hours a day. You know what I'm saying? Isn't there a difference between stumbling into sin and practicing it intensely? Sure there is. Okay. If you're walking with the Lord and you love the Lord, it doesn't mean you're sin-free. A lot of times when trials and difficulties, the first thing, we go, oh, gosh, you must be mad at me. What did I do wrong? Well, you didn't do anything wrong. Job had not done anything wrong. Job had done what was right. So what was going on? God was trying him. God was testing him through bringing these difficulties and hardships into his life. My point is this. The hardships and the difficulties came from God. That's the point. 
Look at verse 13 of 23. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, meaning God, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me. This is not some random thing God just can't. This was planned for him from before the foundations of the world. What are you going through? So wait a minute, Steve. Some people really done me wrong. Well, some people did Joseph wrong. What did Joseph say? You intended it for what? Evil. God intended the very same thing for what? It was part of God's plan for Joseph's life. And later on, he saw it. Look at verse 14. He performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. This stuff, this hardship, this suffering, it comes from the Lord to mature us, to test us, to turn us into men, into men, godly men. And there are no shortcuts to becoming a godly man. You get the crud beat out of you. Isn't that good news? Let's go down and get a frozen custard and celebrate. I'm not real thrilled about that personally, but it's what it says. So here's the verse that I came across this week that I knew. It's Psalm 55. Let me show you this. You talk about, you talk about developing patience. Look at Psalm 55, verse 22. And I've read this a thousand times. You you probably have too. Uh, Familiar. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you say, wait a minute, I've been shaken. Yeah, sure you have. I have too. Um, I use a New American Standard Bible. And I'll tell you why I use it. Um, It's so true to the original text. It's, It's... At points, it's almost wooden. It's so literal. And the other thing I love about the New American Standard Bible, and I first got one when I was in college back during the Civil War, but they have notations in the margin that give you an even stronger literal sense than perhaps how they have translated because oftentimes there's a couple couple of senses, you know, that you just don't capture in one phrase. There's a little bit more to it. You know, it's sort of like getting uh, steak, you know, and shrimp, is what I'm saying. So they put it in the margin, the shrimp. They put the shrimp over there in the margin. Now, if you look at 22, it says this. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Now, here's how the New American Standard renders that in the margin. Catch this. Cast what he has given to you upon the Lord and he will sustain you. I'd never seen that before. And that really helped me this week. Because I was getting tired. I, I don't know what you're dealing with. I know what I'm dealing with. And I was getting worn down. I was really getting worn down. About half the way up to Canada I was I was just having to mentally fight my way out of a depression not a clinical depression just I was just down so I'm working through 
I'm working through scriptures. I'm working through scriptures. I'm working through. And you know, I knew them, but I needed one. That j- I needed like a vitamin B12 shot scripture. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm working them through. I'm working them through. And I came across this. I went, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Cast. Because see, I, and see, I knew this, but not like this. Cast what he has given to you that you don't want upon him. Does that make any sense to you? He's the one that's given this to me. Okay, he, know, he knows where you are. He knows you don't like it. He knows it's a trial, it's a hardship. You look at your buddies, they're not dealing with it, but you're dealing with it. And all. Okay. Cast what he has given to you upon him. He knows all about it. He knows why he's doing it. There's a purpose you can't see. There's a purpose you don't get. He knows you want out of it. He knows you don't like it. But he is infinitely wise. And he knows what he's doing. And we always go back to Romans 8.28, don't we? That's where you always have to land. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let me tell you something, guys. The only way you get relief when when there's not relief from the circumstances, the only way you're going to find relief is to take a step back and let that B12 shot of truth penetrate your heart and your soul. And I'll tell you what that does. It relieves the cramping. Those cramped muscles that are tense, that, that shot of truth, I'll tell you what it does, it just relieves the cramping. And it takes the pain out of the chest. Because you've got a God who is in absolute control. And you know what? You know what will happen? You'll be able to say, all right, Lord, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to cast this, which you've given me, on you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait for you. I don't know how I'm going to do tomorrow, but right now, I can't handle I'm not there, but right now, this is, I'm going to cast it on you. Because you know what you're doing. You know, you know all about it. It's called, it's called faith. That's what it's called. And you know what? There's not a guy in here who wants to walk by faith in your heart of hearts. We would never choose to walk by faith. He forces us to walk by faith. Does he not? So that we can grow. You know what we want? We want to be spiritual guys. We want to be spiritual men. But we want steroid shots. We want the shortcut. God never gives steroid shots. He takes you through the pain. He takes you through the cramps. And he grows you up. And you're about ready to cave. And he says, that's a guy. That's a model of patience. And the angels are watching. Let's pray. Lord, this is what we want. Sometimes. And at other times, we don't want it and we want out of it. I pray for the guys tonight that are particularly hurting and having a difficult time. Give them hope. Give them patience. Let them know that your eye is upon them, your hand is upon them. You know precisely where they are. You know precisely what is going on. You know what they're facing tomorrow in a meeting or with a doctor with, with uh, the possibility of losing income, wh- whatever it might be, you know all about it, all about it. 
and you'll make a way because you always make a way. Help us to sleep on that tonight. In Jesus' name.